0: are um, like oil and water. Just got to say that. So. But it's not about me, is it? Speaking of not about me, do you like the flowers? I'm still praying for snow, just to let you know. But my wife thought we need to brighten up the stage a little bit, and that give you guys hope that that spring is still coming. So underneath those 20-foot drifts, there are some of these things growing here in Winnipeg. Supposedly, we might be able to see them in August. Anyway, we continue in our series on Ask Anything, and uh, today uh, we come to the question of I'd like to believe in God, but what about science? Next two weeks we'll be responding to these other questions. Uh, Next week will be, don't all paths lead to God? And the following week will be, what does God have to do with my sexuality? Uh, So again, Start off on a brief update on Ukraine. You've heard uh, how generous our community has been. And I would just really encourage you because people are constantly asking me if you are standing behind this. Uh, and this is, a, and, and, and hear me loud and clear there are many areas in the world and our globe that need assistance. And we are still true to our missions commitment globally, not just Ukraine. So it's not like we've stopped anywhere else and we go everywhere else. I also understand that not everybody shares the same passion about different areas of the world. Get it, I get it. But if you know or you want to continue, just copy the uh, giving uh, place where people can give directly to Ukraine. Uh, As you heard from Andrew, the amount that has come in, we have partnered with some churches that uh, because of the partnership, I'll just say this, we're in six digits. And so I was going, let's do what we can. Maybe we can raise $20,000. We'll times that by 10. Unbelievable. So we've already been in the process of uh, sending money to um, boots on the ground. And so it's funny because I get these phone calls going, and, and forgive me on how I put this, but this is what I'm known for. I don't know if it's good or bad. Machowski, you don't like giving money to middlemen when you try to get something to people. <laughs> we need to talk to you. The best, best one was a phone call from somebody at Edmonton who uh, represents 365 other businesses, and they want a partner, and they want to know how to be able to get stuff going. And I said, can you guys buy a van? So now I'm trying to use contacts throughout Romania, throughout Germany. Pastor Joanne she said, I have a friend who's a missionary in Romania. You should talk to her. Well, it turns out that this friend in Romania is, uh, what was it? She works with the orphans, uh, you know, Romanian Orphan Free Organization, and 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 so I'm talking to Pastor Sergey, who is our contact on the ground, and he's getting kids out of the children's shelter that we have sponsored to and trying to get them to, to safety, and then he's, they got like 165 orphans, I think, somewhere in, in, in one of our churches there that we work with, and It's like, where do they go? And then I connect them with this person in Romania, and it's like she's in charge of all these. They can guarantee safe spotting for children. Like, it's just amazing. Yeah, Romania without orphans. Absolutely amazing. Talking with the Russian church, please pray for our Russian brothers and sisters who are standing up against this. It was interesting, because they are facing persecution, too. So with martial law about to be introduced within Russia, if you are a foreigner, you can go to jail, just for being a foreigner. If you speak out in favor of Ukraine, you will be persecuted. Our Russian brothers and sisters that we partner with are in trouble, and they need our prayers. So, war is hell. War is messy. But we just came through First Peter, where it says that God is in control. So we do what we can. If you choose to give, great. I know Joanne, Pastor Joanne, has been collecting items, and with her work connections, they've been able to deliver items, and there's numerous organizations that are... Um, Able to collect items. If that's what you're doing, fabulous. And again, don't forget other places of our world. Miramar is one of them where the same thing's happening, but it's just not getting the airtime. And in the midst of the craziness, don't don't be pulling your hair out. I know, Kevin, it's too late for you, but for the rest of us, (laughs) don't be pulling your hair out. God is in control. There's not like, you know, one of the things that we've noticed, and I'm sorry I'm taking a while to get to our life lesson, but one of the things that we've noticed and that I have personally experienced, it's hard to celebrate, it's hard for some people to post the good things on social media that are going on in your life today because you feel guilty. Celebrate what you have. We rejoice with those who rejoice, we mourn. with those who mourn. I need to drink more often. It keeps the tears back. That's why I do it all the time. I didn't mean alcohol. I'm just saying. I'm throwing it out there. I don't want to hear somebody, I'll drink to that. It's the last thing I need today. So again, we rejoice with those who rejoice. If you have something to rejoice and you want the world to do, no, just feel free. Do it. And if you're grieving and you want the world to know, know that brothers and sisters are standing behind you in prayer. That's the church that's where we need each other that's where we surround each other and that's where I want to encourage you today look at you making a difference you're making a difference even right where you are be a support be an encouragement at your school be an encouragement in your place of work make a difference and let people know that there is a God who in the midst of all chaos is still in control is that good are we good so, Jerry, I'd like to believe in God, but what about science? Aldous Huxley said this. He said, Modern science makes it impossible to believe in a personal God. Others said that as science finds explanations of natural phenomena, God becomes smaller and smaller. And as science advances and we realize that everything can be verified in a test tube and ultimately resolved to scientific fact, the necessity of God is eliminated. And once God was the Almighty, and now science is the Almighty. And as Christians, as believers, I think we're constantly being whipped by this kind of thought and statements. Believers are faced with the supposed conflict between science and Scripture, right? We're told that Christianity is scientifically unrespected, that it doesn't gain the respect of a scientific world because it makes non-scientific statements, because it makes scientific blunders. And culture says that you, you, uh, you have to choose. You have to either choose science or you have to choose religion. You can't have both. Either the facts of science or the fantasy of Scripture, but you can't have both. And really, the clash goes on, and it's based on the fact that both science and Scripture claim to have total authority. We looked at that a little bit last week the authority of Scripture. You know, why do we trust the Bible? And there's no question in our mind as believers that the Bible claims that it is right, that it claims total authority. But science does too. As a matter of fact, G.H. Clark, he said this, a scientific method is the sole gateway to truth. A scientist demands that science has absolute authority and faith comes along and demands that revelation Uh, of Scripture has absolute authority. And then science says, well, you can only know truth as you discover it. And the Christian then says, well, you can't really discover ultimate truth on your own because Romans 11 says, how unsearchable are his judgments. His ways are past finding out. So how can you believe in something that you can't be scientifically proven? And again, the world often mocks people of faith, and Christians must deal with, Some really frustrating questions, right? I know I have, I'm pretty sure you all have. Why doesn't God obviously reveal Himself? If God is real, why doesn't He audibly or visibly reveal Himself to us? Why does the Bible and, or why does God in the Bible seem so completely different than today's God? Or what about miracles and supernatural events? They don't seemingly happen as often today. Where are the miracles? Where are the signs and wonders? Why doesn't God physically appear to us and tell us what to do? And I think behind all these questions lies actually a very much deeper inquiry. If God loves everyone and wants everybody to believe in him, why doesn't he just simply, physically manifest himself to the world? Dr. Adrian Rogers, he said this, The God of salvation and the God of creation are the same. Science doesn't take God by surprise. Just just think about that for a moment. That's just a wonderful quote. The God of salvation and the God of creation are the same, and science doesn't take God by surprise. And I think Rogers was right, because, you know, when you think about it, the ancients believed that Atlas held up the earth. As a matter of fact, modern paintings, they used my body for Atlas, or for the earth, I'm not quite sure. But today, we know that the earth is suspended in space, Right? The fact that the Bible records in the oldest book of the Bible, in Job chapter 26, verse 7, he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Isn't it interesting that God revealed facts about the universe long before men had the capacity to actually understand it? When Ptolemy charted the heavens, he counted 1,026 stars. 1,026 stars in the sky, but the invention of the telescope proved that there isn't an infinite amount of stars. But when we look at the scriptures and we go into the book of Jeremiah 3,000 years ago, he says the same thing. He says, I will make the descendants of David my servants and the Levites who minister before me as countless, as the stars in the sky, as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Every now and then, science may disagree with the Bible, but science just needs to catch up. And sometimes it just takes time. It was Isaac Newton who said, I find more sure marks of the authenticity in the Bible than in any profane history whatsoever. Then as you look deeper into the Bible, you find it scientifically touches on many things. For example, in Isaiah chapter 40, it says, Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one, calls forth each of them by name, and because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. It says that it is God who creates the universe. It says that he holds the stars together by his power. It says that not one star is missing. And I think we need to think about that, that not one star is missing, that God has created all of them. Now follow this, because it also says that he sustains it all. Now, I want to address some things because I had to actually dumb this down for me to understand. And and I'll just say this now. There are thousands of books. There are hundreds of courses. um, And I'm never going to get the 100% detail in the next 45 minutes. All right, But I believe I've captured the essence. And for example, that introduces us to what science now calls the first law of thermodynamics. Now, some of you, when I say that, you've, you've already had like a seizure because you're going back into school, and I'm sorry for that. But here's the question. Here's the answer. And the first law of thermodynamics says that nothing ultimately, uh, that ultimately it says that nothing is ever destroyed. Now, again, remember, I'm dumbing this down, so for you scientific geeks out there, please bear with me. I'm a theologian, all right? So, Nothing. And it's the most universal and the most certain of all scientific pr- principles. And since science has shown that there is nothing being created in the known universe now, there are things changing. And energy affecting matter and matter affecting energy and so forth and so on. Now, some of you in science, you're going, okay, I get you, I get you. Others you, you've turned out. That, that's fine. That's okay. Just bear with me. But nothing's being created now. the Bible says that when God ended his work, what did he do? He ended it. And it fits that scientific fact. And that's exactly what scripture says when it says that God who created all things upholds all things by the word of his power. The Bible then introduces us in some respects to the the first law of thermodynamics. It's done. And further, nothing's being created. That which has already been created can rearrange into other shapes and other forms, but nothing is being created. And science knows that. So matter is static in the sense that it never is destroyed. It is never being created. And Ecclesiastes 1 verse 10 says, is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? And the answer comes immediately after the question that says, it was already here long ago. It was already here before our time. There's nothing new under the sun. So there's nothing new, nothing going out of existence. And so the ancient writers of the Bible, thousands of years before the laws of thermodynamics have been categorically stated and affirming what science, calls the conservation of mass and energy. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 14 says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. And fear is not terrified fear, but recognition and honor. And I think that that's an amazing aspect to realize that Scripture is absolutely accurate in defending and defining the first law of thermodynamics, the conservation of mass and energy. Now, just to make it even more fun, there's this thing called the second law of thermodynamics that states that although mass and energy are always conserved, they are also breaking down, and they're going from order to disorder. In other words, Well, you'll never destroy matter, and it's never created, it's disintegrating, breaking down. This is what we see, right? It goes from order to disorder, from the cosmos to chaos, from a system to a non-system, as some science guys put it. And all processes finally will cease, and the universe eventually will be dead. Science tells us this. And this is actually the opposite of the theory of evolution, which says that somehow matter is in the process of going upwards. And it's always improving, and it goes from a one celled media to a complex man. But that's, that's not what science in the law of thermodynamics, the second law of thermodynamics, is saying. The second law of thermodynamics tells us things are breaking down. Matter is breaking down. And as it breaks down, its energies dissipate. And ultimately, the world and the universe as we know it will be supposedly dead because of the total breakdown of energy. So for those who are into climate, we're worried about the climate, we're worried about the sun burning out, we're worried about our globe, we, we see a breakdown happening. And it'll be unable to reproduce itself. It will become a dead universe. You read the end of the book of Revelation, what happens? We have a new heaven. We have a new earth, okay? So maybe we'll have one of those questions coming. The Bible says that in Romans 8. It says the whole creation groans under the curse. It's waiting for redemption from the curse of sin, which came in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall when man sinned, and it brought uh, the effects of the curse upon the earth. And so God didn't make the world with the second law of thermodynamics operating. Not when you study Genesis. God made the world. He looked at it. And what did God say when he looked at his creation? It is it is good. But when man sinned, that second law of thermodynamics came into being. And science has never been able to figure out how that law works or where it came from. But we know where it came from. It came from, what, as a, from a theological perspective. It came from the fall of man. And so when man sinned and fell in Genesis 3.17, God said, cursed is the ground. And that was simply the symbol of the curse that it stretched everywhere. If you want a good explanation of where the second law of thermodynamics came from, you can almost go to Romans chapter 8. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to the frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation of itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so basically, when you're looking at something like this, you have the law that that, that, that the whole creation is in disorder, that it is breaking down. The law known as entropy, the breaking down of of, of the productivity, ability, or or capacity of matter, matter and energy, it's breaking down. There's another science called hydrology. Hydrology is the cycle of water. and This is fascinating for me. And you should know this because you've studied the cycle of water in school. All of us have. If you've gone to school in Canada, you've studied this. You probably did a little science experiment. You had a little, you know, cardboard with cutout stuff that you colored and put it up and made the world show, you know. And your parents were so proud of you. Do you know what the cycle of water is? Do you know how many phases there are in the cycle of water? Anybody? Come on. Even the scientists in the room know there are three. Come on. Right? There's three phases. Do you remember what they are? Evaporation. Right? Right? right. Remember, you guys all got, like, high school diplomas. Come on. Evaporation. Condensation. And what's the last one? Precipitation. Right? So there's the cycle of water. Now, and that's how water goes. And, and do we realize that it's actually all the same water? Do you realize that there's no water as we know it being created per se? It's just the same water. It just keeps going around and around and around. And you get it this year, and then somebody down the road is going to get it next year, and it's the same water, and that's the science of hydrology. It, it, clouds move over the land. They drop water through participation, participation, woo, precipitation. participation, and the rain runs into the creeks. The creeks run into the streams. The streams run into the rivers. The rivers run into the sea, and the cloud pulls the water up back from the sea, and it takes it back over land. It drops it again, and it starts the whole process all over again. In fact, until the 17th century, people believed that there were actually subterranean reservoirs that in the middle of the earth were these huge, inexhaustible reservoirs of water, and that's where springs came from. And they just kept bubbling and bubbling out of these reservoirs. Um, They didn't believe that water could seep through soil and create these reservoirs. They didn't believe that there was any way to replenish them. They didn't believe um, any of that. And so they figured out that there must be these mammoth things. So individuals like Marriott, Perot and Haley came along in the 17th century And they opened up the modern concept of hydrology, where the water is taken up into the clouds, redeposited, seeps into the earth, creates reservoirs in the ground, as well as runs off and fills the seas, etc. That's hydrology. Scripture gives us this. It gives us the hydrology... You know, English is, you know, my second language... I say that so I don't look like an idiot when I'm trying to pronounce words that I really can't because my tongue keeps tripping over itself. Hydrological. Scripture gives a hydrological cycle and the features of evaporation, and this incredibly complex thing is described in Ecclesiastes. Now remember, I'm dumbing everything down for me. It says in Ecclesiastes 1.7, All the rivers flow into the sea, and yet the sea is not full to the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Isaiah 55.10 says, For the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth. Interesting. So Isaiah says, The rain and the snow come down. They water the earth and they go back up again. The water keeps running into the sea, but the sea never gets full. Why? Because the water keeps being pulled back out again. Job 36, again, the oldest book in the New Testament, speaks of evaporation and condensation centuries prior to any knowledge of this. He draws up the drops of water which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds and how he thunders from his pavilion? And I think it's incredible that God made the whole hydrological cycle and there's no conflict with science there. As a matter of fact, we see in Scripture it's accurate. Modern astronomy, which is the study of our solar systems, didn't even begin to replace the old ideas until the 17th century or so. In the 1500s, when Copernicus first presented the idea that the Earth was in motion, they thought he was nuts. Because up to the 1500s, everybody thought Earth was flat as a pancake. Kind of like some people today. So if you have any flat earthers out there, can you just tell them to read Scripture? Because today, you know... It's interesting, the, the, the ancients felt that the earth was, was, was like a, a, a disc or like a record, right? And it was surrounded by this river called Oceanus, and they, they used to say that if you were dumb enough to sail through the pillars of Hercules, as this is what it was, which is what we know as the Rock of Gibraltar, you would fall off into nothingness. And along comes Copernicus, and he says, ah, I think the world's in motion. And then some people sailed around the Cape of Good Hope on South Africa. And all the way up the coast of Africa. And, and, and now that theory that it's a flat ground is on shaky ground. By the 17th century, you have men like Bray, Tycho, Kepler, Galileo, and they give birth to this thing called modern astronomy. And you have to remember that, again, prior to that, people only thought there were a thousand stars in the whole sky. Today, our sciences, scientists tell us that there's a hundred billion in our galaxy. And how many billion galaxies are there? It just keeps going and going and going. And the Bible knew all of that because it says you can't measure them, that they are innumerable. In the book of Genesis, it says that the number of stars in heaven is equated with the number of grains of sand, right? On the seashore, God tells Abraham, I'll multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. Jeremiah made such allusions to the fact that the solar system was a vast and distant thing. In Jeremiah 33, he says the stars cannot be counted. That's a fact, that's a statement. And God is speaking, right? As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David. And so today, we know there are millions and millions of stars in our own galaxy, millions and millions of galaxies that we haven't even seen. And you know, science has recently discovered that all the stars are different as well. There are tremendous varieties of stars. They're not all the same. Early science, scientists actually believed that everything was the same. And wherever they were, it was the same thing. And they found that today that there are infinite numbers of varieties and sizes when it comes to stars. And scientists are busy today, categorizing these sizes and varieties. Oh, so let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, 41, where it says the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. Let's just keep reading. And star differs from star in splendor. Now, the Bible, all the Bible had to do was to say all stars are the same. And if we read that in the scriptures, you could then, we could just walk away from the scriptures and go, there, there it is, it's, there, it, it's been wrong. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It doesn't make that mistake. And not many years ago, science believed actually, you know, um, they actually believed and taught that the moon was a luminous body, right? The moon gives off light. And you took that in high school, I I hope and I trust, if you paid attention in high school. Um, But Job says, and I, I use the King James Version because I think it hits it right between the eyes. Look to the moon, it shineth not. So years ago, Job knew the moon wasn't a luminous body. And so you see, the Bible is right in its general principles. It is right in its uh, astronomy. We go back to Job. He spreads out that northern skies over the empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Isn't that amazing? Job 38 says, the earth takes shape like clay under a seal. It features stand out like those of a garment. And so what does he mean when he's saying all this? Um, you know, again, in ancient times, you would take a stick, a stylus, whatever. You would write in soft clay. You wrote your letter, and then it hardened And at the bottom of your letter, you would put your signature, just like we would write our signature. But most people had their signature on a clay cylinder, and they had a stick that was run through the cylinder. And what they would do on the soft clay when they finished writing their letter is that they would lay their signature down. And so they would put it down, and they would turn it over, right? So that their signature would then be imprinted on the clay letter. And when he's saying the earth takes shape like clay under a seal, what he's saying is the earth rotates on what? On an axis. And so it's incredible. The oldest book in the Bible says that there's a sphere turning on an axis suspended in space, and yet it's not until after the 1500s they believed that it wasn't just a flat as a pancake. Have you ever heard of the study of isostasy, isostasy, neither have I, (laughs) but this is what I learned, it's the study of balance. Now, this whole study doesn't really come into understanding until 1959 supposedly, but it deals with the fact that the earth is perfectly balanced that there is equal weight to support landmass and mountains and valleys and water. The whole thing is perfectly balanced. And that its equilibrium is astounding, right? And they came up with this as the foundation of geophysics. So, you, you know, again, remember, we're asking the question, what does my faith in science have to do with it? Do you know that the water in the oceans exerts a pressure against the shore that keeps the mountains up? This is what I'm told. I did not know this. And I think it's a staggering thing that the earth has different weights of rocks and different places to balance out, and it's absolutely amazing how this is going, because I've never really thought about it this way personally before. You know, have you ever played basketball with a lopsided ball? Boom, 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 like just a little, just a little lopsided extension. You know, you buy these balls usually at Walmart, if you know what I'm saying, but... You can imagine if the earth was just a little bit out of round, right? About every five minutes, we'd be going up and coming down, going up and coming down, right? Because it just doesn't work. And so it's amazing that you have this. uh, Geology has a subscience called uh, geodesy, G-E-O-D-E-S-Y. And it's the study of the shape of the earth. And it's clear that the earth is spherical, that it's basically round. And now the ancients thought, remember, it was what? It was flat. They said, I told you, if you sail far enough, you're going to plonk off into nothingness. That was really dumb because Isaiah told them what it was. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, and I just love it. He says, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. Can you believe it? That word circle there is the word "kug" in... in uh, in Hebrew, it's translated as sphere. And so we know the earth is spinning at a tremendous speed, and yet its balance is perfect. Do you realize that around the face of the earth, there are mountains that reach well over 20,000 feet high? Do you, do you realize that there are depths of the ocean that... Um, uh, Go the other way. Do you understand that the combination of the mountains and the depths of the sea, the weight of the rocks, the weight of the water, they all have to be figured out mathematically by an infinite mind, that infinite mind of God so that the earth doesn't go through space kind of like this throwing us out of space every time it turns. Isaiah 40 verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands or the breath of his hands marked off in the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scale and the hills in a balance? It's incredible to think about how God has kept the earth in perfect balance. Psalm 104 says, He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with the garment, the water stood above the mountains. And I think it's fantastic that God said in the Old Testament, I've made the earth so that it's balanced. And you take gravity. It wasn't until Newton in the 17th century that the gravitational laws were finally finalized. And, and it was Job who said in 26, chapter 26, He spreads out the northern skies over the empty space, and he suspends the earth over nothing. That's gravity. It's there. It's pulling in. There's one more, the currents of the ocean. Mid-1800s, there was a scientist named Matthew Fontaine Maury, and he believed that the paths of the seas that are mentioned in Psalm chapter 8, verse 8, were real. And if we turn to it, it says the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, all that swim the path of the seas. Path of the seas. I want to try to think about that for a bit. Put yourself 100 years back or so. Path in the seas. What does that mean? There's no way that you can understand what that meant. And yet this guy believed that the Bible was accurate when it talked about the path in the seas according to Psalm chapter eight. And so he spent most of his life discovering and mapping ocean currents and underwater streams, and his research earned him the reputation of the father of oceanography, path of the seas. His work has been an invaluable resource ever since. One English philosopher was famous for applying scientific discoveries to philosophy, and he came up with a great discovery which he was heralded with. And he said this. His name was Herbert Spencer. He said, everything knowable in the natural world fits into one of five categories. Everything is either time, force, action, space, or matter. And it took him until the 19th century to, uh, before anybody really discovered and identified what these categories were. Yet everything in existence fits into one of these categories. And so what do we do? We go to the Bible. We open up Genesis chapter 1, right? That's what we do. We always go to the first book. let's just open it up. And what do we have? We have in the beginning, right? That's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. And what Herbert Spencer didn't discover until the 19th century, God wrote in the very first verse of the very first chapter in the very first book of the Bible. And he gave us all these categories that we needed for everything. You know, the Bible doesn't contain scientific terminology, but it, it is amazingly accurate. Now, somebody says, well, wait a minute, Jerry. What about when it says, you know, during the time of Joshua, the sun stood still? And that's not very scientific. Everybody knows the earth was moving around the sun. And if the sun appeared to stand still, what really happened? You know, did the earth actually stop moving? Because the Bible says the sun stood still. Well, It does. It did say that. Now, the first thing and the obvious thing is we could say it was a miracle. And uh, the other thing, another way that we can look at it is a perception of the person on the earth. That it looked like the sun stood still. We're not sure. I tend to think of a miracle, but I'm going to give you a different explanation. And again, it comes down to perception, and and that's what you and I would say if we were standing here and we looked up and the sun stayed in the same place for about five hours. Now, from perception vantage point, you would say that the sun stood still. And to show this, to sort of understand this, when you got up in the morning and you look to the east, which is that way, what do you say? Do you say, oh, look, another lovely earth revolving? No, no. We call it a sunrise. And tonight you're going to look to the west and you're not going to say, oh, look, look at how the earth is revolving. It's not revolving, that's the sun set. The sun is not setting um, from a scientific viewpoint, but from your vantage point, from your perception. And so when people speak of these phenomenal things that happen in life, they speak of them from perception. There's also the thing of miracles, which I personally, again, I don't draw up, but I'm just giving you another viewpoint. Nevertheless, the Bible, in my opinion, is scientifically accurate. The Bible even tells us in Psalms that the sun makes a circuit from one end of heaven to the other. And it was only in the last century that we discovered that the sun is dragging our whole planetary system in a circular orbit from one end of space to the other while we're going around it." We read that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, there are even those, even within the church, that don't believe what the Bible says. There are people within the church community at large We'll tell you that the Old Testament is not for today's Christian in spite of the fact that Jesus did once say, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Some of those people who speak against Scripture don't even know that the law and the prophets comprise 22 of this 39 books of the Old Testament. There are also Christians who think the Bible is full of errors, scientific errors, And unbelievers have convinced some Christians that the Bible is a book of religion, that it's not a book of science. And obviously, the Bible wasn't written to teach us about science. It's not what it's for. It was written to teach us about God. So don't let a believer or unbeliever take away any of the truth that God's Word offers you. It will rob you of a freedom that comes from a faithful relationship with Christ. And I think that's what Jesus was saying when he said, you know, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. How many, of us, how many of us want that freedom? We want that life that he has offered us. And there are extraordinary scientific facts in the Bible. And many of them were not known by science or even by believers until recent generations. And yet the Bible knew about these things thousands of years ago. And the writers of the Bible knew about these things long before the scientists ever did. It takes the science of physiology. It wasn't, you know, you take that, it wasn't until William Harvey in 1628 discovered the circulatory system what is the key to life. We know that now. You know, we understand that blood is the thing that keeps us alive, but how many remember in history class the doctors used to drain people's blood when they were sick because they thought it was going to let the disease out of their body. They wondered why their patients kept dying. They didn't know at the time, in ancient times, it was the blood that it was the blood that uh, um, contains the life of the human body. They're literally draining the life out of people. Oh, by the way, the next time you say to your kids, you're draining the life out of me, they're actually not, literally, just saying, just throwing it out there. And it took until 1628 when, when Harvey, you know, said it straight. Now when somebody is sick, what do we do? We give them blood, Right? Modern science, modern doctors didn't know that until pretty recent generations. And yet the Bible clearly told us 59 years before Christ in Leviticus chapter 1711 that the life of the flesh is in its blood. 1953, a medical book came out entitled Personality Manifestation in Psychosomatic Illness. And it really became an important book. And today we know a lot about psychosomatic illnesses. And this book discussed how emotions can cause del- uh, debilitating and even fatal illnesses. And the book had diagrams in it of the emotional center of the brain in which nerves fibers sort of descend uh, to every area of the body, and it became uh, of these intricate connections w- with the emotional center of the brain sending out uh, to all those nervous impulses through the system, and it's understandable that any emotional trauma, any emotional stress, any turmoil in that emotional center can send out impulses to the fibers of the nervous system and it can cause anything from headaches to a foot itch onto serious other illnesses. We know that now, right? The book recorded that the emotional center produces illness in three ways. Changes the amount of blood flow. A good illustration was somebody gets angry, what happens? Their face turns. Right, right. Um, or, what about when we get embarrassed? Our face turns red. Or, you know, some people, their skin, you can tell when they're upset, you can tell when they're anxious because they get hives or they, they, their skin changes color right before your eyes. It's almost like the Hulk. You gotta be careful how I phrase that one. But emotional stress can increase the amount or decrease the amount of blood flow. And consequently, it can cause disease. Emotional stress can cause disease. Secondly, emotional stress at the center of the nervous system can affect secretions of certain glands. Have you ever been nervous before you were to give a speech? (sighs) What happens? Your mouth dries up, Right? The glands close down. Or you sweat. You ever see people standing up and they're, they're, they're talking, they're giving a public thing, and they're just like pouring, right? That's, that, that's a very emotional thing that's going on in your brain. It sends certain impulses to your nervous system. It dries up or it fills up the glands that provide fluid to your mouth or to the rest of your body. And now what happens is, for example, when you get an excess pressure on emotional stress, for example, excess thyroxin is produced by emotion and it's poured into the bloodstream and it can produce things like goiter and even fatal heart disease and it's all a matter of emotion. the third way that emotion changes its physical health is by creating muscle tension can i get an amen (laughs) right nerves affect the muscles right how's your neck doing how's your shoulders doing the muscles tighten up and they become tense and you say well that's nice then they discovered all that but what does that have to do with the bible and what you're talking about today well, I want you to know that the Bible anticipated all of that, that the Bible knew that your emotions were very, very important in terms of your health. Because when you go into the book of Proverbs 16.24, you see gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and what? Healing to the bones, our words. And what formulates our words? Our emotion. God knew that emotional stress and that anger and that criticism and whatever it is and the sour words and I can go on more and more and more with scripture that there was no way that uh, people could have clinically discovered that because God revealed it. He said in Proverbs 17, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. A happy person is a healthy person, right? An unhappy person is an unhealthy person. Let me close with this. A little book written by two doctors called None of These Diseases. A little paperback. It has some really interesting things to say. And and I found it actually very profound for where we find ourselves uh, with the pandemic and all this stuff. Because it it, it mentions that for... hundreds of years the dreaded disease of leprosy had killed countless millions of people on, in, in Europe. Another guy by the name of Dr. George Rosen who was a Columbia University professor of public health, he said this, he said that leprosy cast the greatest blight that threw its shadow on daily life of me- medieval humanity. Fear of all other diseases taken together can hardly be compared to the terrorist spread by leprosy. Leprosy, okay? Not even the Black Death in the 14th century or the appearance of syphilis towards the end of the 15th century produced a similar stage of fright. In other words, leprosy was that terrifying. Okay? Black Death was terrifying. Syphilis. We'll be talking about sexuality in a couple weeks, in case you don't know where syphilis fits in this conversation. So during the 6th and 7th centuries, leprosy began to spread more widely throughout Europe and it became a very serious social and health problem. It was widespread, particularly amongst the poor. It reached a terrifying peak in the 13th and 14th century. And so what did physicians offer to stop this ever-increasing ravages of leprosy? Like it was scary for people and some people actually thought they taught they thought that it was brought on by eating hot food (laughs) i'm a leper pepper garlic or the meat of diseased hogs that was science at the time other physicians says it was brought on by the conjunction of the planets the aligning of the solar system and so naturally there's suggestions for prevention where otherly. Worthless, And so now you have the leprosy and you add another plague in the Dark Ages, right? The Black Death, bubonic plague. And so in the 14th century alone, we are told that it literally took out these, these diseases, took the lives of one of every four persons. Estimated 60 million people in Europe at the time were taken out. They, they called it at the time the greatest disaster in human history, sweeping everything before it, right? And so the the plague itself brought panic and confusion to society and the dead were hurled into huge pits that were quickly dug for that purpose. These putrefying bodies, decaying bodies everywhere. People were dying in the streets. They were dying in their houses. It was a horrible time. Can't, can't imagine. But there's something that brought it under control. Again, we go back to George Rosen. He gives the answer. He says, leadership was taken by the church. Listen to this. As physicians had nothing to offer, the church took it as the guiding principle, the concept of contagion as embodied in the Old Testament. This idea and its practical consequences are defined with great clarity in the book of Leviticus. Once the condition of leprosy had been established, the patient was segregated and excluded from the community. Following the precepts laid down in Leviticus, the church undertook the task of combating leprosy. And it actually accomplished the great feat and methodical eradication of the disease. And where does that procedure come from? It comes from Leviticus chapter 13. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone, and they must live outside the camp. Isn't that interesting, especially when you talk about COVID today? And how much we hate isolation, we hate masks, we hate vaccine, we love masks, we love isolation. Know, more than not. Uh, or we love vaccines. Like, isn't it interesting what scripture is addressing, even written back in Leviticus, that applies to us today? You don't like what I say? Take it up with him. He's the author of the book. Other historians credit the Bible for the dawning of a new era in the effective control of diseases. A guy by the name of Arturo Castigl- Casti- Castiglione. He wrote the the history of modern medicine. He said that the laws against leprosy in Leviticus 13 may be regarded as the first model of a sanitary legislation. You see, the Bible knew the solutions to these problems. The same God who wrote the Bible is the same God who made the world and the worlds in the universe guy by the name of Henry Morris, he said this, he says, The Bible does provide a perfectly sound basis for understanding physical processes. It serves well as a textbook on science within which we can satisfactorily explain all the data of science and history. The issue is not between science and scripture. Get this, the issue is whether a man wants to submit to the word of God or does not. and it boils down to Romans 1:20 which defines men in these terms they did not like to retain god in their knowledge and so having dumped god they have come up with some explanation having rejected his revelation they have come up with the only other option if god didn't make it then it ju- then it, if god didn't make it then it just happened There is no real conflict between the Bible and science. You can be a Christian and still be very, a very capable scientist. We had Christians like Galileo, like Kepler, like Descartes, like Leibniz, like Newton, like Pascal, like Rick Weeb, like Gord Giesbrek, like Julie and Chrissy Kim and Deb Robinson. Just to name a few. Some of you go, I don't know the last few names in the history book. Never read those before. No, because they're sitting among you. (laughs) Why are we fighting science when it's in our scriptures? And again, the Bible doesn't use scientific jargon. That doesn't make it non-scientific. It talks in everyday language, and the fact is that there is no contradiction. There is no real conflict between science and scriptures. I can sleep at night, some people can't, but I can. The conflict for me comes when science stops being science and science starts being religion. And you see science by its very definition can only deal that which is observable, right? that which is reproducible and whenever it gets outside of reproducible and experimental fact then it starts trying to talk about origins and destinies and that's in my opinion, in my opinion you can disagree with me but in my opinion that's when it starts becoming religion because those things can't be observed and that's where the conflict lies. And I could have added biology, I could have added archaeology, we could have done anthropology, etc. And again, we would find that every time the Bible touches on these things in certain ways, and it's absolutely, in my opinion, very accurate. And there's only one way that this truth could have been known, and that is the God who made the world revealed it to men who put it down in writing, and we now have it in front of us. Is the Bible believable? Science tells me that it is. Science has not refuted scripture. In my opinion, it's actually confirmed. it. So what is, my, is there a conflict between my faith and science? Well, my opinion, no. And again, there are many people in our community here today who would stand beside me and say the exact same thing. So, thank you for asking anything. And thank you for sharing or giving me the opportunity to take a, a Sunday morning and changing our style a little bit. And so next week, we're going to go do all paths to lead to God. This is fun. Because I get this one all the time. I, I love this one. So bring a friend. And again, if you're somebody's guest today, we are thrilled that you're here. I, I hope that you had a cup of coffee. I hope if you felt comfortable with that. Uh, in the future, when the mask mandates drop, Uh, as of the 15th, so we still have one more Sunday with us uh, enclosed. This will be a mask-friendly church. In other words, people are going to be walking in through our doors on Sunday and they want to be a part of this experience, but they have, for whatever their reason, they're going to be wearing a mask. The last thing I want to see or hear is that somebody walks up to somebody and says, what are you wearing your mask for? You don't need to anymore. This is a mask-friendly place. We are the church. We're the church for all people. And so if you want to come and participate with a mask on, fabulous. If you're going to come and participate with a mask off, fabulous. I just care that you come and participate. And I don't care about your politics. I said it last week. I'll say it again. We leave the politics outside. Our world is screwed up right now. And there are bigger issues in Ukraine, in Miramar, in Russia, than us worried about this. So in your personal life, in your corporate life, my one encouragement to you is to pray for the church. Pray for the church at large. Pray for the church in Ukraine. Pray for the church in Russia. Pray for this church. I hate being transparent, but pray for me. can't control it. I cry every day. My kids love me. One sits down with me and says, you got to stop. You can't do it. You can't do it all. And I know that. But I got to do something. And so I keep moving, and I keep doing what I can. And I keep doing it carefully, and I keep doing it so that I can rest. Because there's people that I love. There's people that I care about. And some of you may not know this, but actually, I, I have family in Ukraine. I even offered one to, to come and they said, and these are like second and third cousins. She simply said to me, thank you for the offer, but we have American passports. And part of me is saying, what the heck are you doing in Ukraine? Why? Because they have a calling and a passion for people. And this is a, this is a passion for people I have not seen before, I have not experienced firsthand. And when I hear that pastors and their wives are not leaving because they want to take care of refugees and people that their people need them that their church needs them i look at what i have before me and i realize how blessed we are and i realize that i have to do something and you do what you need to do but i need your prayer I need your prayer. I don't think I've ever said that before. And I like the positive prayers. I don't like the negative ones. I just want to say that right now. Oh, God, break his leg so he can't do anything or wreck his keyboard. No, 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 that's not what I'm looking for. I will be going away for a rest to try to unplug. But until that time, I'm working literally tirelessly get things done. And God has orchestrated stuff incredibly. I just need a clear mind and I need to control my emotions. I prefer being very stoic. That's how Jesus made me. I think he's breaking me now, but that's a different story. Let's pray. Stand with me. Father, we're thankful today just for the joy and the privilege of being able to share, to have our hearts lifted to a new and fresh confidence in your word, to sing your praises, to, to, to break bread with one another, to see people and to hang out. God, we are grateful for the fact that uh, even in our life lesson, the more science discovers fact, the more it charts the present process, the more the word of God is vindicated. In this book is your truth, God. So give us a fresh new confidence, a fresh new boldness to stand for the book. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Before our band plays us out with the creed, in ancient times the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing and those receiving the blessing did likewise. So Soul Sanctuary, will you go now, like get out of here, please, and live in the presence and the security of the Holy Spirit. And even when you are led into the wild and hard places trust and give yourself to God. Think about that. And may God enfold you in the tender and lasting love, and may Christ be beside you in times of your struggle, and may the Spirit guide you back to the path whenever you stray from it. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord, and go and live the church, and we'll see you next week. Be blessed. Make somebody happy, all right? World's tough.